Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think the notes of civility really reflect uh, Washington very seriously attending to his studies uh, and trying to become the best version that he can become of himself. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee discussing his new article on George Washington's rules of civility. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee, and he'll be discussing George Washington's Rules of Civility. You know, George Washington had a very big life. I'm sure you know that. And he's done a lot. And the question becomes, when you have a person who's written as much as he has and achieved as much as he has, at what point do you stop studying the minutia of the man? At what point do you not dig into a relatively unknown topic, like his rules of civility, uh, and focus on the big things? Of course, the answer is never. You always dig into the minutiae. As historians, that's where we do our best work. Sean David McGee reminds us of that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Sean David McGee. Sean McGee, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, Brady, for welcoming me back to the podcast. Remind us about your background. Uh, I'll keep it uh, much briefer than last time. Uh, As far as my academic background is concerned, I earned my MA in American history at Rutgers University at Camden and completed my PhD in history at Temple University. I am a historian who focuses mainly on the politics of the American Revolution, uh, the relationship between print culture and politically, political community formation and the politics of the early national period. Uh, I teach history at Cinnaminson High School in Burlington County, New Jersey, and I am adjunct faculty at Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia, where I teach interpreting history and modern American politics. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, well, this is, uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, my second paper, published in the Journal of the American Revolution, is titled Reframing George Washington's Clothing at the Second Continental Congress. Uh, it's an exploration into sartorial politics, how, uh, how historical actors have ultimately used clothing to project things like, you know, competence, power, and proficiency in a given scenario. What I set out to do in that paper was really rehabilitate Washington's sometimes, sometimes ridiculed decision to wear his military attire at the Second Continental Congress. Um, and in that paper, I wrote in passing that Washington had early on been given some degree of training in the importance of clothing. Uh, his mother was in tune with fashion and fabrics, and he dressed perfectly for like horseback riding and hunting and that sort of thing. 
And Washington's handwritten rules of civility stress the importance of keeping clothing neat and appropriate for the occasion. And that's really all that I had. It was just really a single piece of evidence and a longer paper that followed Washington's career and what I consider his skillful employment of making certain his clothing projected whatever social, military, or political objective he sought to meet. Uh, when the Journal of the American Revolution's chief editor, Don Hagas, emailed me that the paper on Washington's clothing had been accepted for publication, he also brought up the rules of civility and asked if I would be interested in writing a paper exploring those rules. Uh, so naturally, I was, you know, I was quite excited to take on the challenge. I had a few other things that I was working on at the moment that I was hoping to wrap up before I began my investigation in earnest. But I have to, I have to say, there was a little voice in the back of my head that just kept telling me, you know, this is it's George Washington. We must already know everything we possibly can know uh, about these rules of civility. And uh, boy, was I wrong. Uh, first, I ordered a copy of the notes, and oddly, the version that arrived at my home was the outdated J.M. Toner edition from 1888, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on later in our conversation. And it's, you know, it's strange that if someone unaware of the controversy surrounding Washington's rules of civility simply ordered this edition, they would have a sort of completely upside-down appreciation of the notes, as Toner presents them in a very matter-of-fact fashion. Uh, He's, he's wrong, of course, uh, but more on that later. Uh, from there, I, I decided to retrace and reconstruct how the notes had been reflected in the historiography from the beginning. And that, of course, sent me on quite a literary adventure. What were the rules of civility? Sure. Uh, this is a deceptively complicated question, Brady. And before Don asked me to undertake this project, I probably would have said something like, uh, they were a set of rules that Washington either learned or invented to like, control his impulses and regulate his behavior among polite society. Uh, since he lacked the traditional education that men of his birth and rank would typically receive. And I think that even for those of us who study Washington and his world with any degree of seriousness, seriousness might be forgiven for thinking that this was in fact the case. Uh, once I started researching, however, I was really shocked by what a mystery these rules presented. Uh, so here's a line of demarcation. Uh, so what they are and what they have become, I think, are related, but not necessarily identical. Uh, what they are involved some real detective work on the part of this eccentric scholar from Virginia named Moncure Conway. They're a compilation of 173 maxims, depending on the edition, because that changes as well, that cover mainly etiquette and morality in a range of scenarios. And the general breakdown in the original version uh, is, you know, something like how how men should behave with among one another, uh, the proper topics of, you know, conversation, when and when not to discuss certain topics, uh, how to address social inferiors and superiors, things like clothing maintenance and you know, personal hygiene, regulating body language, how to behave at, at a dinner table. Uh, and let me just add that if someone became deeply intimate with these rules, they would not have anything close to approaching, approaching a traditional education in any academic sense. The rules, as far as I understand them, mainly aim to curb like crude behaviors and provide some social safeguards for the uninitiated. 
what they have become is, you know, depending on the scholar, either the backbone of Washington's moral character or simply a rote exercise in improving Washington's penmanship. And of course, what they meant to Washington is still somewhat of an unknown as well, uh, but I have, I have my suspicions. How did early historians treat these writings? This was one of the more eye-opening discoveries in my research. Uh, and if you'll just permit me to just do a, a quick run through some of the early historiography, I think that will flesh this out. Um, Chief Justice John Marshall's flattering survey says nothing about the rules of civility. Mason Weems' largely fictitious 1808 publication also makes no mention of them. Uh, the first time that I'm aware of them being reflected in the record is from Jared Sparks, who was a New England scholar and during the 19th century for a period of time, president of Harvard University. Uh, he compiled this 12-volume um, collection of Washington's writings in, in the 1830s, I believe, and a two-volume, Life of Washington, in, the eight, in 1842 or 1843. Sparks is now more famous as someone who altered his sources and gave away a lot of Washington's papers to his friends. Uh, but to his credit, he does mention that the rules existed, uh, but all that he's really willing to to say about them is that Washington likely collected them from sources that he ultimately did failed to cite. Um, in the 1850s, Washington Irving, Irving, over five volumes, assumed that Washington wrote the rules himself to avoid embarrassment when in the company of the Fairfax uh, family, a, a wealthy and influential family that Washington's half-brother married into. And then finally, in 1888, a Dr. J.M. Toner provided the first publication and full transcription of Washington's rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. Uh, Toner did his research. Uh, he searched the Library of Congress for any literature on like morals and uh, uh, morality and manners dated 1745 or earlier and ultimately found nothing. And in his introductory essay for his volume, uh, he claims that Washington must have written the rules himself when he was a schoolboy. Oddly, Toner identified the rules as perfectly in tune with old world cosmopolitanism and didn't really bother to address how and why a provincial boy like Washington would learn of and take an interest in these values. I think one of the more shocking treatments comes from Paul Lester Ford, uh, who, who wrote a book called The True George Washington in 1896. Uh, Ford was a very gifted historian. He's a very good writer. He was also incredibly meticulous, which I think makes his treatment of the rules even more puzzling. Uh, not only did he fail to keep up with the historiography, uh, and I'm referring specifically to Moncure Conway's work, which we'll get to in a moment, but he wrote this really uncharacteristically passive passage where he just simply offers that Washington's biographers think that Washington wrote the notes, and that's it. And I would imagine Ford probably had Toner's work in mind uh, when he drafted that sentence. Uh, that's really the only excuse I can come up with. Or maybe he was unaware of, of Mon of Moncure Conway's work. Um, but they're at least reflected in the early literature, which is you know, you know, know, probably a little more than what we see today. Who was Conway, and what did he contribute to this field? 
uh, Conway contributed a great deal to this uh, to this mystery. He doesn't solve it, uh, but he comes pretty close. Um, now, Conway himself was a remarkable man, and I, I think his story is worth fleshing out. I, I think that uh, this is a you know his his life is truly an unbelievable one. Uh, his his story deserves, I think, like a, a Netflix series, and it's probably not too much of a stretch to compare him to like Forrest Gump. Uh, he and what I mean by that is he practically met everyone of note during the time that he lived. Uh, he 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 grew up in one of the wealthiest families in Virginia. His father was a slave owner uh, who was married to a woman named Margaret Daniel. Uh, Daniel's grandfather was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. One of Conway's relatives, I think on the father's side, and I'm forgetting the, the relationship, but one, one of his relatives was on the Supreme Court, and he voted in favor of the Dred Scott decision. Uh, Conway himself was a really progressive thinker, uh, and he became a full-throated abolitionist and committed feminist. Uh, he initially planned to study law after he witnessed the lynching of a black man in Virginia, uh, but eventually he attended Harvard to study divinity. Uh, he became a transcendentalist after meeting, of all people, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, and he probably took on his rabid abolitionism after meeting, among others, William Lloyd Garrison and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, when the Civil War breaks out, he's a very serious, committed pro-Union character who you know, goes on a lecture tour and writes a book that's pro-Union, which earns him a meeting with Abraham Lincoln, where Conway uh, urges Lincoln to support abolitionism, to weaken the Confederacy. I mean, this... It's it's a really a remarkable story. While is he one last note, and then I'll move on from this. Uh, while in D.C., like he, he he runs into a few dozen of his father's escaped slaves, and he buys each of them a, a, a train ticket to escape to Ohio, uh, and he goes with them. You know, at a great at great personal risk. And after the war, he moves to England to become an advocate of women's suffrage. Uh, and his friend circle in England includes Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin. I mean, this this is a, a remarkable character. He eventually becomes a biographer. He writes up a book on Thomas Paine, and he writes a book on Edmund Randolph, who was the attorney general under, under Washington. And after J.M. Toner's book came out, he decided to write a book on Washington. Now, here are Conway's contributions. When he travels back to Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, he begins to scour the municipal records, and he discovered that the first school in Fredericksburg was a school that was organized and set up by French settlers and that the first teacher was also uh, from France, a guy by the name of James Marie. Uh, Marie moves from France to England in 1726 after he's ostracized by his family because he converted from Catholicism to Protestantism. And Marie really becomes the key for Conway's understanding of the notes of civility. Uh, when he finds out that French settlers started the school and, and the Frenchman Marie was the, was the teacher in the school, he becomes convinced that Marie must have been the teacher of Washington and that the rules of civility must have been French in origin. And when he revealed that assumption to a friend of his, a friend of his in the British Museum, uh, this friend actually alerted Conway to the existence of this old book that was in French and Latin. Within the pages of that book, to Conway's delight, uh, he found most of Washington's uh, maxims. And what Conway do, did then is he, he traces this, or the origins of this manuscript to this 1595 publication that was written by someone from the College of La Fleche. Uh, you'll forgive me but for butchering some of the French pronunciations. 
they shared the manuscript with a neighboring college, uh, and the original title was Beyond Seance de la Conversation, which, which translates to Good Manners and Conversation. Uh, this pamphlet received a warm welcome, and eventually printers reproduced it in Spanish and German and other languages. Now, Conway next learned that there was an English edition called Youth's Behavior or Decency in Conversation Among Men. And this contained most of the missing maxims that he didn't find in the French translation. And here's where it seems, as far as I can tell, where Conway stumbles a bit. Youth's Behavior claims on the title page that it was transcribed from French by an eight-year-old named Francis Hawkins. And Conway could not he just couldn't conceive that this was possible. So he largely downplayed the importance of Hawkins. Uh, in the end, and this, is, this, is, this is what Conway puts together. He theorized that James Marie, the, 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 the teacher in Fredericksburg, who left France for England in 1726, brought with him from France to England a French edition of the rules, and while in England, purchased an English translation called Youth's Behavior, and then moved to British North America, where he settles in Fredericksburg. Uh, and there, Conway concluded that Marie used both the English and French editions to teach oral exercises uh, in, you know, in, in manners and morality, and that Washington's copybook really reflects this sort of French-English amalgamation. Uh, and this is really impressive circumstantial evidence, I feel, but it also seems clear to me that you know even this exciting bit of detective work, detective work rather, is is not wholly wholly correct. Sean, how have recent scholars talked about these writings? Um, recent scholars don't seem to have too much to say. Uh, the most recent assessment that was in depth and dedicated exclusively to Washington's rules came in 1926. Uh, when Charles Moore, the head of the Division of Manuscripts for the Library of Congress, took up the task. Uh, he has a great line in his introduction where he writes of Washington's rules, much has been written, but little is known. Uh, Moore convinced himself, and I think that he's right here, that it's, it's beyond doubt that Washington had in front of him, in some way, shape, or form, Hawkins' youth's behavior, the English translation uh, that that Moncure Conway was able to track down. Now, this is where things get a little tricky, though. Um, Moore uncovered that you know the original youth's behavior was published in 1640, and then the English Civil Wars break out, which delays any further reprints or editions being released. Um, finally, in 1649, the printing press begins to move again. And he recognizes that the 1663 edition has every single rule contained in Washington's rules of civility. So uh, Moore was convinced, and I think that he's right, that Washington had before him the 1663 or a later edition of Youth's Behavior. Uh, and, you know, the, again, the 1663 edition has every maxim that's reflected in Washington's private manuscript. Later scholars, um, if they mention the rules at all, do so in passing. Joseph Ellis, in his, uh, his Excellency, wrote them off as simple handwriting exercises. Uh, John Furling, in his Political Ascent of George Washington, credits them with shaping Washington's principles, and that's really about all that he has to say about it. Uh, so I think you know, m modern scholars are, are you know, more fascinated with Washington the general or Washington the president or Washington the slaveholder, oh, slaveholder rather. 
And Washington the boy, for whatever reason, appears to be less appealing to to historians. Sean, in your opinion, what could be the cultural influences that impacted Washington's writings? I think the cultural influences of the day are reflected pretty clearly uh, for, you know, Washington, I think, trying to attain a level of education that he was denied uh, for, for personal reasons. I think, I think George Washington saw multiple goals when he copied these rules. Uh, from, from experience, I've come, I've come to the conclusion that whenever a historian is asked an either-or type question, uh, the answer is usually uh, a little bit of both. Uh, did Washington copy the rules down to, to, to live by them or to practice his handwriting? Uh, I think he he practiced his penmanship while attempting to ingrain the lessons he was copying. After all, you know, Washington is aspiring to be an 18th century gentleman, and 18th century gentlemen sought to improve themselves constantly. So the cultural influences of the day, I think, are we're going to we're going to find them there, right? Whether fencing or riding or or hunting or or, or handwriting, right? Which is the topic that we're discussing right now an 18th century gentleman would be you know really focused on realizing his moral physical and intellectual potential so washington from the rules you know he probably he probably learned at an early age to remain quiet in company unless he had something to add he probably learned not to spit in the fire from the rules uh, to offer guests the best seat uh not to express you know his personal happiness among those who are suffering a tragedy. Really, all the social etiquette needed to navigate uh, what I think is a pretty judgmental and, and carefully calibrated social hierarchy. Uh, but while learning these principles, of course, he mastered beautiful and ornate penmanship. I mean, if you take a look at the rules of civility, they are both readable and attractive on the page, which would have been the goal, right? Utilitarian and aesthetically pleasing. Just what a budding 18th century gentleman would would strive for, really. He gave us a pretty extensive list, Sean. Do we see Washington practicing what he preaches throughout his life? Maybe, maybe in some of them. I mean, I, I know that in, in in a previous paper, I, I I looked at his you know careful maintenance of his clothing and and, and dressing appropriately, you know, for the, for the right situation. I, I think you, we see it there for sure. Uh, I, I think the rules, though, fundamentally were designed really to erase any sort of remaining crude behavior that some upper class French boys might have brought with them to their classrooms and dorm rooms in the 16th century. Uh, and as it turns out, of course, boys and lingering crude behaviors were ri- widespread enough to see those rules translated into pl- plenty of different languages and used in multiple multiple kingdoms. I can't support this with the record, but I'd imagine that once Washington returned from Barbados in the early 1750s, he really wouldn't have needed to reflect on the rules. I mean, he was about 19, and he was already integrated into polite society. Uh, And Washington, and this is supported by the record in his papers from his visit to Barbados, was an outstanding observer. So he missed little. He usually said nothing, but he was always watching, always learning, always thinking. So maybe the rules of civility started him on this path of, of like social observation, and he continued this behavior for the rest of his life. Or maybe he was always observant, and the rules just helped him focus on what he should be looking for. I think that's, you know, that's what I can offer on that question. Sean, how do you think we should think about these writings? 
So I, I think these writings reveal, if nothing else, Washington's strange educational odyssey. I think these writings root Washington, however fairly or unfairly, as an outcast in some ways. Uh, he was always aware of his own academic shortcomings. Uh, he agonized over his private correspondence. He corrected you know, multiple mistakes and wrote multiple drafts of the same letter to send it out looking you know, as close to perfect as he could get it. Uh, there's an example that I bring up in the paper um, when Lieutenant Governor Robert Dinwiddie demanded his military minutes uh, be published uh, for his journey to Fort LeBeau. Uh, Washington, of course, did as Dinwiddie asked, but he provided a disclaimer in the introduction, apologizing for the numerous. I, I think he uses the word innumerable, uh, but the numerous mistakes uh, in 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 the draft. If you read the records of the first and second Continental Congress, Washington is physically present, but virtually silent throughout. Right, he's, he's this powerful physical presence that hardly says anything. When his secretary, David Humphreys, asked Washington to write his account of the revolution, Washington claimed he suffered from a, quote, defective education and asked Humphreys to do it. Uh, and, you know, to sweeten the deal, he offered Humphreys complete access to his papers and memory, along with an attractive apartment. Um, we should remember that Washington's own private educational journey uh, and his insecurities about it uh, caused him to become a crusader privately, um, helping defray the cost of college for some of the children of his friends uh, to help them avoid the sort of education deficit that he felt so deeply. Uh, he invests uh, in, in college. Uh, he invests in educational initiatives. But this is long before he's president, of course. So it's clear that when capable, Washington wanted to help young men you know, receive the education respective of their station. Some of this drive, of course, must have been rooted in his desire to help others escape an embarrassment that he likely had experienced over his own lack of like traditional cultivation. So I think the notes of civility really reflect uh, Washington very seriously attending to his studies uh, and trying to become the best version that he can become of himself, given the limited circumstances available to him. Uh, I think that's how we should we should remember them. Sean McGee, thanks again. Uh, thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.